Hello and welcome to 90% Hits, a podcast about the number one singles in Australia throughout the 90s. My name is Danny Yao and with me as usual is Tim Coyle. And Yong. <laughs> Casey Atkins. Good evening. And down the line from the Gold Coast, Tim Byron. I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are... Counting down the number one singles throughout the 90s, and if this is the first time you're listening to us, you should probably go back to episode one. But regardless, if you're here now... Uh, about three or four is when we started being really good at it. <laughs> yeah, don't go back to episode one. Yeah. If you're here now, we are currently midway through 1997, uh, and that's where we're going to be picking up from. In fact, our first song of tonight was number one for a whopping eight weeks from the 6th of April 1997. And this is Savage Garden with Truly Madly Deeply. Truly, madly, deeply, number one for eight weeks by Savage Garden. And we've actually talked about Savage Garden on the last episode as well, so we're kind of picking up the story again from here. But let's get everyone's take on this song before we move forward. Tim Byron, why don't we start with you? Truly, madly, deeply. I went through the list of the over 100 songs that we have covered so far in this podcast, because we're over 100 songs now. Wow. And I was trying to think, I was trying to figure out, is there a song that is worse than this in the entire history of the 90s that we have covered so far? Because this is pretty close to the worst. Uh, and, and so I was looking through and thinking of the different ways that songs can be bad. Um, <laughs> this one is definitely the musically the most predictable and boring song we have covered. Like, th- there's other ways in which songs can be bad. So looking through the list, there's been some pretty stiff competition in some ways. You know, this song is more competent than Read My Lips by Melissa, because that's not. It's just simply more not competent. But that song at least had some sense of spark, and this song, Truly Madly Deeply, does not. This song is not quite as cloying as Brian Adams' trilogy of shit, <laughs> but there's more going on in those songs. Like, the, the chords at least are more interesting, and there's that kind of clever songwriting, structure kind of stuff I can hear. Whereas this is just, like, it's just boring to listen to. And this song is slightly more memorable than Insensitive by Jan Arden. <laughs> what but song it, is that? What? But, you know, that song's at least more competent than this thing is. And so, like, I think, like, it's not the... It, it's kind of like the golden mean of shit, this song. It, it's like, it's not the worst at any of the kind of things that make songs bad, but it's the one that's the worst at the most things. So, yeah. <laughs> I could have written better songs than this in 1997, and in fact, I did. <laughs> right. Casey Atkins. Yeah, that's all right. I don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't have much of a problem with this. I don't 
I didn't like it, and I um, I think I talked about it on the last podcast that, that Savage Garden were just kind of outside my wheelhouse at that point, and and I let them sort of pass me by as I was listening to what I thought was much better music. But now I'll listen to this, and I just I listen to this, and I just uh, see on every level why it was a hit, and I just go, sure, fine, have the hit. Like it was a. Re- ridiculously massive hit which is probably something we'll get a little bit more into but i think it's kind of because of all of the things that you're talking about tim that that made it such a big hit um like for someone who comes at it with a real musical brain like like we might we see that as predictable but the the, but the great unwashed see it as just like um safe safe comfortable yeah you know um reliable and and that's why they just they just love it and it's just <laughs> yeah i know yeah it's but and all, all all stuff that we look for in music right safe comfortable reliable <laughs> well <laughs> and it's not what we look for but it's what a lot of people look for and it's you know it's just um really you you find that melody line and you riff lyrics over it and those lyrics end up being the lyrics um you find those four chords that one change it's pretty much every breath you take by by the police uh, which is interesting given the context of tonight, but we'll get there. Um, and, and, and it's just, it's just a fine song. And it's another one that I, that I was thinking of what we've talked about before where, um, the whole thing of bringing this into a meeting of, with your, with your record label and your, and your record label <laughs> manager just getting a massive hard on and calling a half day. <laughs> <laughs> High fives everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Coyle. Yeah, it's just, it's one of those songs that kind of just had to exist. There's always one of these swimming around somewhere near the top of the charts and it just happened to be this one. I think at the time, this is one of the first instances I can remember where I had a very objective way of looking at it. It's like, I could see why that's number one. Yeah. I don't enjoy it, but I could see why it's number one. It's, look, as I said, it's just one of those kind of um, stock songs that they just pulled out of pulled out of the vault as it were um, to put out there because look it's the ballad that people swoon over and shift units in their hundreds and thousands and that's why it got to number one um, yeah as with the the other guys I find it pretty predictable it doesn't say anything of, um, that I find insightful or revealing about the subject matter that it covers. It's, and the thing is, after I Want You and To The Moon And Back, which we've listened to, and I found something, I found something in To The Moon And Back, this is quite a letdown. And yeah. this is also, we talked about when we spoke about In The Moon And Back in the previous podcast that maybe... No one really knew who their audience were at first. They could have covered a, a, a whole bunch of different demographics. This song was where they found their audience. Yeah. And yeah, it was definitely that top of the charts, number one, top 40 mm. kind of audience. So, yeah, this just uh, locked them into that. Look, we, we don't get to talk about Savage Garden again. Their next record Damn. and their chart stuff doesn't really come till after the end of the 90s. So let me just evoke the other song that 
is the complete ripoff of this one, which is I Knew I Loved You. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other number American number one single they had, the other ballad. And it kind of felt like if Savage Garden had continued, every album would just have one of one these. One of those, yeah. It's a bit like, you know how U2, there's always a song that sounds like one <laughs> on every album. You know, they'll just go back to it. and Just in case it hits the mark. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, this is that song. And... I don't hate it. I totally get how it uh, how it got to number one. I think I might differ from the Tims in that thinking. I think it's really hard to write one of these songs. Like there's a lot of simplicity to it, but if everyone could do it, everyone would do it. Yeah, I think you, there's there's a point to be made there. Like yeah. there is, uh, you know, it's not easy to write "Eat, Pray, Love" either. Like yeah. you know, it's it's to be so open and to capture such broad romantic strokes without sounding, I mean, coy to our ears, but without sounding coy to the public and, you know, making it sound like it's something honest is really hard. So, but yeah, the lyrics are so bad. Nothing come from To The Moon and Back and some other songs where there was a bit of wit and great imagery. That friggin' chorus, yeah. I want to stand with you on a mountain uh, and just like, Ah, oh, just does my head in. It's 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 saved the best for last territory. Yeah, it is. Isn't yeah. It? The, the thing that you were saying about the song being, um, you know, these kind of songs being hard to make is completely right, and that is why this is such a shit song because they tried but they failed. No, I think they, in my view, I think in every other metric they succeeded. Right, this made them millionaires. It got a number one single all around the world. They were trying to write this song, and look. And the other song that we keep coming back to as well is there's nothing worse going on here for me than Wonderwall. Like, you know. Um, it's a little unfair. I don't know. This, this song is just, like, it's just lacking in any spark. It's just lacking in any sort of cleverness in the songwriting and, and stuff like that. Like, it really does remind yeah, me of a song that I would have written at the time. The thing with Savage Garden is they were talented. Um, they, they were talented at writing melodies. They didn't really know how they were doing it at this point. I suspect it just kind of happened. And Darren Hayes had a really lovely voice. He had a really sweet voice, which had a Michael Jackson kind of thing. And to me, that voice is why this song was popular, rather than the song itself. I think it's a pretty shit song, but I think he's, the way he sings it really gets something across, and people are responding to that in the kind of you know, it's 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 catchy enough in its way, but it, it's. Like, it's just a really painful song for me to listen to. Like, I find it really painful. You don't think millions of weddings after this had this song? Like, I think people love this song. Yeah, I, th I think it's one of those things. It, it, it captures, for a lot of people, sentiments that are really difficult to express. So when they hear it in this, where it's just so simple, um, then, yeah, they can latch onto it. Because, look, uh, it's, it's not easy to say these things to someone. And look, I, okay, so I remember, so let's, let's go back to uh, I Knew I Loved You. Another terrible lyric, you know, and we take this stuff apart. It's like, you know, I was, I was as the age where I was cynical and go, how can you know that you, like, you know, <laughs> how do you know, whatever. I just remember my brother's girlfriend just saying to me, I knew I loved your brother before I met him. I went, okay, well, how do you argue with that? If, yeah. you believe in the, <laughs> if you believe in the premise of the song and that's where you're coming from, then this is going to be your favourite song. And it's, I, I know a lot of people who love this song. It's probably still their most famous song, and I don't know. It's I don't like it, but God, it's loved. I think universally. Um, Is it? 
I get the I get the impression it's the kind of song that's just sort of been forgotten over the years. There's some songs sort of do. Like, I mean, I don't listen to the kind of um, you know easy listening mix one hundred six point five kind of thing, and I don't know whether they still play this kind of thing. But like, it's not a song that I would have heard for a decade before listening to it this week. Yeah, I that's a, it's an interesting point actually. And Danny and I were kind of talking about this before, as we were trying desperately not to talk too much about the podcast before <laughs> we started recording. Um, but we were wondering about how much this still does get played, and I think that's what what you've just said has probably really hit on it. I reckon it probably does get played on Mix One Hundred Six Point Five yeah, and Smooth uh, FM. Uh, on that. that note, we borrowed a friend's car recently. Oh, yeah. In true David Putty fashion, the number one preset was Smooth FM. Oh, nice. Truly, madly, deeply did play on. Well, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. There you go. Here's the thing. I imagine the person who wrote the lyric for this was not the person who wrote the lyric for To the Moon and Back. Right. And that person probably grit his teeth. Yeah. <laughs> to make the million dollars. And I look at Daniel Jones in the film clip, who's not very much in the film He's clip. He's not much, yeah. is he? And I wonder if that was going, you know, okay, I'll write one, you write one. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also... It's as though what I was talking about, this was the moment where everyone at the label went, oh, that's who these guys are. Yeah. And it's like, okay, pull the guy who's actually holding an instrument back and put Darren out the front because he's prettier. And also, this is the songs, this is the style of song they should be singing. Well, not the more interesting stuff. And that is the story of Savage Garden, right? Not only did they go, hey, do you want to go up the front? By the time of the second record, everyone was telling Darren that he didn't need the other guy and that you need to go solo. Yeah. You know, and he did. And it was, in my opinion, a mistake. Because, like, then what happened? Well, exactly. And even if they made a mediocre third record, I feel like at least they would have held on a career long enough that at least we would be remembering him a bit more fondly or having made a bit more of an impact. But now they're kind of going to be forgotten to some degree. You know, I think so anyway. Yeah, oh, well, good. Yeah. <laughs> Our second song of tonight was number one for nine weeks. Savage Garden was eight. This this Shit, song got really to number one for nine weeks. There was a lot of babysitting money going around this, this time. Uh, this <laughs> is Hanson with Mbop. Do it up, party. <laughs> 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 <What>? <laughs> I 
Why are you laughing? What, what, what's funny? I don't understand. That was Hanson with Mbop number one for nine weeks from the oh. 1st of June 1997. Nine weeks! Oh, that's a huge amount of time. Uh, Casey, why don't we start with you? How do you feel about Mbop? Okay. Um, I love it. I fucking love it. Um, this is probably the best example of anything that we've come across so far of a song that I wouldn't admit to liking at the time that I like pretended not to like, but I really liked it. Um, but like, I would, I, I just, I don't know. It just didn't have credit. It wasn't cool enough. It wasn't UMI. It wasn't whatever, <laughs> but, um, but I really liked it. And I listened to it about 20 times today and I really, really enjoyed it. I, I, I just think it's great. I think it's, um, it's so joyous and sh- beautifully sugary and not, but still, I mean, there's, there's sugary stuff that, that, that I just can't stand. And there's sugary stuff like this that just speaks to me that just hits a certain bone that I have, you know, it just hits this nerve. A bone, that, you say? Yeah, I know. That, that was a bad word. That was a really bad word. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Emma, for laughing in the background. Um, but I, I don't know. It just, it just gets me in my power pop kind of place that I probably didn't even really know existed in 1997. <laughs> um, and, and now I just, I just see it as, as, as brilliance, really. I just, I absolutely love it. It's pretty nonsensical and, and, um, and everything, but the harmonies are golden and I, I love it. Love it. Tim Coyle. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought the man who no, loved no. Morrissey did not but he did. I love this. Awesome. <laughs> at, at, the, at, the, at the time, this is, this is a case of I was too interested in trying to torment my sister to ever really listen to this properly. Yeah. Um, so I didn't pay it much mind. I think I might have listened to it once all the way through and just completely forgotten about it and then yeah. Took to um, teasing my sister about Taylor Hansen uh-huh. as often as possible, um, and you know the fact they look like little children of the corn <laughs> yeah. in that regard. But look, this is just such a great pop song. Um, for me, if you played this back to back with "I Want You Back" and ABC and all those great Jackson right. Five hits, yeah, it just fits in seamlessly. Sure. That's exactly what this song is. Uh, it just has that perfect um, childlike energy and mm-hmm. abandon about it. He sings the fuck out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really well played. I love that guitar tone that they had throughout and the little counter melodies that Zach's doing. Yep, are great. And look, it just reminds me of being a kid and watching all those 70s kids TV shows like HR Puff and stuff and Sesame Street. (laughs) Just look, those kid shows that the whole thing was life is awesome. And yeah, that's exactly what this song is. And the fact that he introduces a whole new unit of measurement. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. In an mbop, they're gone. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right. Awesome. Tim Byron. Yeah, compared to truly crappily shitly, <laughs> this feels like, you know, like Bohemian Rhapsody. And like, to, to be honest, th- this is pretty pleasant. It's pretty good. Like Tim, Co- like Tim Coyle, um, I was getting definite Jackson 5 vibes from this. I, I remember at the time, I don't think I like hated this at the time or like paid it that much attention. I think I was just kind of like, this is the song for girls. And so I don't think I kind of you know, thought that much about it. But um, 
Yeah, my partner JD was a big Hanson fan. Like, you know, like recently there was this sort of BuzzFeed thing like that was like, look at all these weird Hanson photos. Like we just like a list of sort of photos. And I showed it to her because I thought it might be entertaining. And she could tell me like where these photos were taken oh, and wow. what weird magazine she'd seen them in and like to that extent of like of crazy fandom. And, um, and what camera she used. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, I like that the attention to detail went down to the pronoun there as well. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so um, so I've I've heard surprisingly a fair amount about Hanson recently, and um, yeah, so um, yeah, listening to this more recently, yeah, it is just a joyous little pop song. It's um, it's bubblegum at its best. Bubblegum is pretty awesome, and yeah. you know I, I like the nineteen ten Fruit Gum Company. God damn it! And this is just as good, and this is just as good as the Jackson Five songs. Um, Taylor Hanson sings it beautifully. I don't think I ever thought he was a girl. I think I'd read about them before I knew. <laughs> Um, that that was a thing. So I don't think that was yeah, no, in my I, mind. I, I did have that thought. I, I do remember wondering. But that was the thing that everyone said at school and it was just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, I should let Danny talk about what he thinks about the song. Uh, yeah, I like I like the, the family guy joke about... <laughs> what was the family guy joke? Quagmire just says if he could have any girl in the world, he'd be the middle <laughs> one from Hanson. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, I never liked this song, and I kind of still don't. Really? Listening to it this week, it reminds don't me. Don't you have two ears and a heart? Dude? <laughs> 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 but it was on a brain, and this just sounded like and, this... and the entire collection of discography of Phil Collins. <laughs> <laughs> this this just sounded like the 90210 theme to me. <laughs> you know, it's just upbeat and stays upbeat, and there's no lyrical value apart other than nonsense. I mean, that's what they're trying to do. I could barely decipher the lyrics sometimes and then just, and it's, it's just, there's a whole lot, like listening to it this week, it actually made more, like I'm going, okay, having not heard this song in decades, just hearing to it, it's like, mm, bop, and then you just this whole lot of like, oohs and oh yeah, and it's like, wow, you're really not even trying to put any lyrics in this song. <laughs> like, it's just noise. Like, they just had the melody <laughs> and were scatting over it. So, um, and how? better that I, than I want to stand with you in a mountain, personally. Oh, look, yeah, that's fine. I mean, I probably don't like this song as much as that, but it just, I don't know, it just sounds like a, a power pop instrumental, which isn't really anything. Like, it's a nice, nice, but it's not, I don't find anything in it that I ever, I don't know, guitars are nice, but guitars are nice on 50 million other records that I have. The hook is good, but every song by every other power pop band is and hooks as good as this. No, I don't agree with that. So, yeah, I don't know. It's not really my thing. There was no... Yeah, listening to it this week, I kind of walked around going, eh, I might as well listen to the 90210 theme song. So, I don't know. And I've never really got Hanson. I guess that's the other thing. I, I maybe much like Tim Byron, I was elsewhere. Mm. Like, and, you know, you said you didn't really care for them back in school. I pretended not to. Yeah, I, I think I lying. <laughs> at, the, at this point that Danny said it out loud, I think he will be... Harmed bodily by my wife in the other room. <laughs> it was a, Emma was a huge Hanson fan uh, at at this time. Had a huge crush on Taylor Hanson. Um, and <laughs> sheepish grin from the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, look, they've really gone like from what I know of them. They've kind of gone into that power pop world. I remember one of the last things I heard about them 
until we talk about tinted windows cases yeah. to, is that they, and what what sort of prepared me for that shock was um they did a matthew sweet i think recorded oh, okay. produced one of their albums well you want to talk about producers the dust brothers produced this what yeah. yes <laughs> yes the Dust Brothers, for those playing at home, um, produced Odelay by Beck, which was like really kind of state-of-the-art kind of crazy shit at the time, and then they went on and did this. Yeah, right. I would have thought the Channel 9 promo team produced <laughs> I only found that out today. Yeah, right. Because, um, you know, I was doing my, my, my wiki research. And, yeah, the Dust Brothers produced at least this song, I guess, the album as well. But, um, yeah, yeah, insane. And which makes me think, because the only thing that grates on me production-wise on this song, because everything I, I find quite wonderful in terms of the instrument sound, it's that bloody scratching, yes. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You really get the impression someone at the record label was just, it was really... We need scratching, guys. Yeah, but it's 1997. Itchy, itchy, scratchy and poochy kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Just kind of, the kids really like DJs. Put some scratching in. It's yeah. just like the Dust Brothers are like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they were hired to do, right? Um, can we can we talk about Tinted Windows yet? <laughs> okay, can, I, can I say my thing about the Tinted Windows? Okay. Uh, my thing is that I recently actually bought the Tinted Windows CD for a dollar from JB Hi-Fi and it was worth every penny. Oh, <laughs> really? Oh, the Tinted Windows is great. I bought the Tinted Windows um, when it came out. It was what it was... One of the last CDs I bought, I think, and I ordered it from Amazon. Um, I love Tinted Windows. So, again, for those playing at home, the Tinted Windows is a, is a record that was done about three or four years ago by... Um, it was a bit of a power pop supergroup. So, Taylor Hansen was the singer. Um, it had the bass player from Fountains of Wayne called Adam Schlesinger. Uh, the drummer from uh, Cheap, Cheap Trick, Bunny Carlos, was in it. And the guitarist from... Actually, to tie us back into last week's episode... Um, the Smashing Pumpkin. The guitarist from... <laughs> James E. Asian guy. Yes. Um, so how was it being in um, Tinted Windows, Danny? <laughs> I hated every moment of it. If I bought that album for a dollar, I would ask for a refund. <laughs> I didn't like that record at all. Didn't you? I oh. loved it. I thought it was really, really good. Oh, yeah. I thought it was really, really worthy. Like those guys that knew each other and were mates and liked that kind of music and got together and made one record. And really? Yeah. I, that's not how I read what that project was about. No, that's how I read it. I read that project was about, hey, someone thought that they might be able to sell Taylor Hansen again to the pop world. Oh, I know. That's not how I read it at all. No. Got, got a massive advance and a whole lot of sort of support behind it. They had a major label deal. If you saw that line up in front of you, you would. <laughs> oh, does that lineup have mean anything to anyone? But I think, like, I think it's the kind of thing that happened and then the, you know, it got sold. Like, it's... But like you know, you live in the world in the world of the music industry in a way that Casey and I don't, and so like that stuff matters to you in a way. It just doesn't. We just listen to the music rather than worried about what the bands. No, but it just it was it was uh, promoted as a Taylor project, and at least it was to me and to radio stations, mm. and you know, and no one just gave well, a crap about like that guy anymore. The next Founders of Wayne project is going to get on the radio anyway, so if they're going to promote it, they're probably going to have to promote it. As I a know Taylor that's project. the thing, right? Back to Hanson though. Hanson were here like last year, weren't they? I know a lot of people I know saw them. And they've just released a beer. I know! Mm, <laughs> mm, hops! It's mm, cool. hops! Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> the other thing to talk about with Hanson is they had a bunch of other hits, like, mm. you know, Where's the Love? They're, Where's um, the Love? Weird and, like, I Will Come to You. Like, they had quite a big bunch of hits from this album um, because the girls who were 14 at this point, like, really wanted to hear more Hanson songs after <laughs> Bob, And uh, so they did. And so they did. Yeah. I, I remember that album being very big. Yeah, it was huge. 
Uh, middle of nowhere. Middle of nowhere, that's right. Yeah. Um, but I, I think not being a 14-year-old girl, after that album, <laughs> they did kind of disappear from the charts. I think they would have. But, like, you know, that's just the way with all the kind of boy bands. They've got the kind of moment in the sun when the girls who are 14 are 14. You know, by the time those girls get to 16 or um, or 17, they're, they're interested in other stuff and there's a new band for the girls who are now 14. You know, that's, right. that's the cycle of pop. Right yeah. now that's uh, uh, One Direction. Um, in two years, it's going to be some mm. other band. Um, looking at looking at the charts now, uh, there was a second album that had a song that got to number nine in the charts called If Only in 2000. So there you go. Yeah, but he, therein lies some of the issues of categorization there because calling Hanson a boy band, which they are in a lot of respects, and they were definitely marketed as such, but you play Mbot next to anything by the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC or One Direction, Everyone else should be arrested yeah. for being as horrible as they are in comparison to this. I have a soft spot for Backstreet's back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> just a weird song. I just have a soft spot for Backstreet's back. Any band that sings about themselves is mm. kind of just really strange. That whole song. I have, about- I have two syllables for you. Rock set. <laughs> <laughs> Any band who's, what should we write about for our next single? Let's write about Ourselves. us coming back. <laughs> Genius. I guess there's sort of levels of boy band, like, you know, like the, the, the Beatles, in a sense, were a boy band. It's probably yeah. in a reasonably similar sense, um, you know, the Beach Boys were a boy band in probably reasonably similar sense to the Hanson guys, where they probably didn't play all the songs, all the instruments on their album. Um, but you know, they were kind of a band, like they could play live and they still continue to play live and to play their own instruments. So they're kind of on the boy band side of boy bands, but as far were, as boy bands go. But they were very much on the boy side of boy band yeah. as well. Yeah. That's yeah. the other thing, right? Which yeah. That drummer looks like he's four, yeah. right? <laughs> which, is, which is part of why they were marketed as yeah. they were. Mm. <laughs> I know. Okay, which just leaves us with one more question then. Who was the hottest member of Hanson? <laughs> <laughs> Look, Taylor Hanson. Ta- Taylor Hanson is very pretty for yeah. like boy or girl, really. <laughs> <honestly>. <laughs> Our third song of tonight uh, was number one for five weeks. These are long runs for number one songs. They are, yeah. Uh, from the 3rd of August, 1997. And this is... Puff Daddy and Faith Evans featuring 112 with I'll Be Missing You.
That was I'll Be Missing You featuring a whole bunch of people from 1997. <laughs> Jesus, a lot of people on this. And um, let's not even look at the songwriting credits. Tim Coyle, we haven't started with you tonight. How do you feel about Puff Daddy, Faith Evans, 112? Uh, well, I'll Be Missing You. We've alluded to this song quite a few times already <laughs> in this podcast. And we've alluded it, alluded to it being maybe the worst thing that ever did exist. <laughs> and, you know, it's close, but uh, I thought I would actually hate this more than I did listening to it this week. Oh, really? It's pretty bad. Actually, it's very bad. Uh, and uh, I have to balance that out against the very... Uh, look, it is heartfelt and it is sincere and the guy did lose his best friend. So, you know, I'm cutting him a tiny bit of slack for that. But um, so much is ill-judged about this song. That On the album version, there's the, what, four-minute intro with the choir that he's talking over and eulogising. Oh, I saved myself that one. (laughs) Yeah. And then, yeah, just uh, a bad choice of song to go on to rewrite essentially and yeah it's it's so mawkish and as i say you don't really want to be too nasty to someone who's grieving in such an obvious way but yeah it doesn't really work that well for me the the rapping is kind of i don't like puff daddy as a rapper in the first place and he just veers from so-so kind of stuff to stuff that kind yeah. of has you worrying at times <laughs> because yeah he's just so mournful on this and not not in an intriguing or interesting way it's just oh, dude <laughs> no and yeah okay faith evans seems prettily but yeah it's not mm. there's just not that much to it if they were trying to pull out all the stops as a tribute to their late friend and husband and what have you, this is kind of not the greatest tribute. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. Faith Evans was... Uh, um, B.I.G.'s wife. Yeah. Yep. yeah, right. That's right. That I hadn't made that connection yet. Look, I'll go next on this one just to mix it up, but I can't... And mainly because I'm, I feel, feel like I feel quite the same as Tim Coyle. It's a song that, when approaching it this week, I thought would be worse, and... Maybe time has blunted its uh, impact on me on how terrible it is. It's like, yeah, I remember this. Oh, yeah, it was this. And, um, and But I was kind of touched by going, oh, yeah, this guy did this. And he's saying these things because his mate died. And that emotional bone does cut through. And once again, much like the Savage Garden song, you know, people started using this at funerals and stuff immediately. And, uh, and it, it works on that sense. It's, yeah, it's a terrible, it's a sample of a song that I don't really care that much about. Um, it's, there's not much that he's bringing to the table. Uh, he doesn't, it's not very interesting. Faith Evans is not a great singer. He's not a great rapper. But the only thing that is working in this song is the sentiment, which totally works for me. So, yeah, I'm kind of, like, I hated it back in the day. It was the enemy back in the day. Mm. Listening to it this week. Yeah, I kind of go, Okay. I'll, I'll give you a pass on this one, Diddy, or whatever you're calling yourself this week. <laughs> Tim Byron. You know, we, we covered Sting before, and I didn't really care about the police then. Um, you know, we talked about 
staying alive by entrancing it's just kind of like you know rapping over the the riff from some other song kind of thing and i didn't really care about that i didn't mind it it was fine um and so like i wasn't particularly um the kind of person who was going to hate this but i did hate this at the time like I don't think I really knew much about the Notorious B.I.G. and who he was at the time and all that kind of stuff. It didn't, I didn't really know what that was all about. And I'm not even sure I knew it was about him. Uh, but to me, yeah, the, the song's just lazy. Like, his rapping's lazy. The, um, you know, the sample is used lazily. The, um, you know, the singing is just kind of, you know, the, the, the changing of the words around in the chorus is just kind of lazy. It's just, it's just lazy. And I don't, I mean, maybe lazy is sort of the wrong for, word for it. Maybe they were just all shell-shocked and they didn't know what they were doing. Or maybe Puff Daddy just isn't particularly talented. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, I, I, I look at this and I kind of, you know, now listening to it, it I didn't hate it as much as, uh, as I suspected it would. It's nowhere near as bad as truly shitly craply. Um and but you know I think about this and you know Puff Daddy these days is a record company guy. He signed um, Janelle Monae, and so like you know probably the success of this song is the reason why Janelle Monae's you know albums are made. And so I think that's pretty cool. I like Janelle Monae. Um, you know, so it's all right. Casey, yeah, it's pretty. I guess it's reasonably easy to ignore. I'll give it that to a point. I didn't remember it when I saw it on the list. So like I had to listen to it for like from when I, when I looked at the title of it, I, it didn't um, come to my head what it actually was until I listened to it. And I was like, Oh yeah, this thing. And I certainly didn't like it then. Um, I don't know. When you got so many people involved in a song, why couldn't you write a fresh one? <laughs> like, there are so many people credited on this song, like artist and writer. Like, why don't you just write a fresh song? There are so many people involved. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't actually know that that's what it's about to, to be honest. Um, oh, really? No, I didn't do my research today and it didn't, I certainly didn't care about it nearly enough at the time yeah, to right. know what that was about. Um, so to me, this was just another boring rap song over a, uh, over a song that I actually didn't mind. Um, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't ever need to hear every breath you take by the police ever again in my life. But um, but certainly at the time I didn't really have a problem with it. And the riff's kind of fun to play on um, guitar. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice little figure, isn't yeah, it? It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of cool. Um, um, but, yeah, I've got really nothing for it. Well, it was about the death of Notorious B.I.G., which came sort of very close to the time when Tupac was killed, both killed by drive-by shootings. And it was big news at the time. But... For me, it was something that passed me by, and I guess that's the question for you guys, which is this whole world of burgeoning gangster rap, mm. East Coast versus West Coast, life after death, you know, Tupac versus Biggie, all that sort of stuff. How did that play out in your lives, if at all? <laughs> it sailed completely over my head. Tamworth didn't have a gangster rap scene? <laughs> Probably, but... Um, <laughs> did, but we weren't in it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Side, you went East Coast or West Coast? Yeah, I was neither Blood nor Crip. I don't know. <laughs> They're both West Coast. That's fine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Byron, you're on the Gold Coast. You must, you must deal with drive-bys all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're bikers, not gangsters. Mm. I remember at the time, like, that there were people who were into this kind of stuff, but it wasn't me. Like, I, uh, I remember sort of like liking California Love because it had a good riff, and I remember watching the video clip for that, which was quite well made. And um, mm. I did like Puff Daddy's, um, you know, collaboration with 
uh, Notorious B.I.G., which came after came out after he died, uh, Mo Money, Mo Money, no, Mo Problems, which has a really great mm. riff to it, mm. which is um, you know taken straight from a Diana Ross song. But hey, it's still a great riff. That was the first time I heard it. Um, but yeah, as this kind of like West Coast, East Coast kind of thing was something I don't think I really understood. Uh, like I, I kind of knew that it was happening, but I didn't know, really know the history of it. And I probably didn't really know the history of it until I started reading stuff about you know, pop music history and stuff in general, which probably I was doing 10 years, 15 years later. Mm. It's, it's interesting that even, uh, I guess, in 1997, something like this, which is a pretty huge development in what was a pretty large um, and influential scene in the US, took its time to filter down to yeah. us as teenagers in Australia, whereas now you've got that instantly. Right. Uh, you would find out something like, B.I.G.'s death on Twitter the moment it happened yeah. kind of thing. I mean, the guy who killed him would probably be bragging about it, yeah. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. Whereas in 1997... Does Suge Knight have Twitter? Oh. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, in 1997, we, we didn't have that. So no. this kind of filtered through very slowly and... Look, the first thing I knew of this guy having existed and dying was this song. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, as Tim Byron said, more money, more problems, uh, which I really liked, uh, which came out even after this, I think, as a single, um, which, yeah, I, I found a lot more to, to that than I did to this. Yeah, right. Casey, a question for you. Yes. Can how many Puff Daddy, Tupac, and Notorious B.I.G. songs can you name? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just kind of this song with the, the the numerous performers and the many, many writers and the yeah. fact it's also there's a police song in it. It's, mm. We're sending our love down the grave. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the most important thing about Puff Daddy from a, a historical perspective is he was the guy... He was the first sort of rapper guy who turned his fame into this kind of multi-million dollar empire with, you know, shirts and, like, and, you know, perfumes and this and that and, like, turned his brand into the huge big thing. Like, he was the first guy who really, really did that. Surely Wu-Tang were doing that beforehand. Like, Wu-Tang were their whole merch thing. Not to the extent that Puff Daddy did do it. I mean, this is real entrepreneurialism. Yeah, like you yeah, just lucked into it, didn't they? But like you're talking about Wu Tang clothing and stuff. Yeah. But like the people wandering around the states in Sean John polo shirts are like, are like another level golfers and stuff. Oh, right, as, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. you do see that as yeah. well as the the mm. kind of gangsters and stuff. But you see it all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Like did. bands have always had merch, and like rappers have always had merch. But Puff Daddy really did take that to the next level of um, yeah, you know, of, of putting out <clears throat> colognes and perfumes. Well, and, like, sort of, yeah, it's a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, um, and that, that's exactly it. Like that he promoted all this stuff is is his lifestyle and you can share in my my, my Novarish lifestyle if you you know buy all my stuff you know that's the message he was putting out there and it was a hugely successful right. message and so many rappers have followed in his footsteps from 50 cent you know yeah other ones have we seen get him to the greek yeah i have not actually uh, i haven't no yeah. Puff Daddy makes the least convincing head of the record company that you've ever seen in that <laughs> film. So, but he's kind of funny. So he's quite funny. Yeah. It's actually, you know, if there's one redeeming thing for him, for me, it might actually be worth all this. Was his his performance in that film? <laughs> so. <laughs>
Our fourth song of tonight uh, was number one for four weeks. Another decent Another run for long run, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're covering months and months in this, this episode. Four weeks from the 7th of September 1997. This is Will Smith with Men in Black. In black, remember that, just in case we have a face-to-face and make contact. The title held by me, MIB, means what you think you saw, you did not see. So don't blink, be what was dead is now going black suit with the black ray bands on. Walk in shadow, move in silence, guard against extraterrestrial violence. But yo, we ain't on no government list. We straight don't exist, no names and no fingerprints. Saw something strange, watch your back. Cause you never quite know where the MIBs is at. Uh and That was Men in Black by Will Smith, number one for four weeks in 1997. Tim Byron, why don't we start with you again? Yeah, it's so 90s, this thing, that like a song about like <laughs> you know, these mythical government men who come around and try and like erase people's memories, like a song about that, like from a movie, um, from a very successful science fiction movie, had a number one single. Like yeah. it, it's such a 90s thing to happen. Like there's, there's not many more 90s things than this. And, um, yeah, the, the 90s are so obsessed with aliens, um, you know, the X-Files and, like, the kind of, like, the, the Pinchonian paranoia that was, like, you know, contextualized at the time. Uh, I was trying to be Tim Coyle there. And, um, <laughs> but, like, you know, he, he's right. Like, you know, this is a big fancy-looking mainstream movie about, like, you know, a very kind of paranoid kind of thing. And this was huge in the 90s. And, um, and this song is, like, for me, I really liked this song at the time. It was, it was just super slick. Uh, like, it, Will Smith was just like the consummate professional as a rapper and as an actor, and it all fit perfectly with the brand of the of the movie. I saw the movie. I enjoyed the movie at the time. I can't remember much about it, <laughs> uh, which, you know, considering what the movie's about, like these guys who erase memories is probably the right thing. And, um, yeah, so I thought this was good at the time, and I listened to it now, and I hear basically the same kind of thing. It's, you know, really slickly done. It's really kind of, you know, Will Smith, you know, raps really well. And, yeah, it's... What, is, what else is there to say about it? It's just Men in Black. It just exists. Casey Atkins. This is fucking terrible. What are you talking about? <laughs> I just, I don't know. Like, I, the, the whole franchise definitely passed me by because it was not my vibe. I would not like this kind of music. I didn't like those kinds of movies either. And there were a lot of those kinds of movies. And I, I even then wasn't into it. I was watching like the Kevin Smith films and stuff at this point, And this was no fucking more rats, you know? And I, I remember thinking today when I was listening to it is that like, look, songs get written for a, for a whole lot of different reasons. Sometimes people sit down and, and write a song because they want to write a song. And sometimes you need a song for something. So somebody has to write it. Um, but there is no reason in that second case for the song to have to be this fucking bad. 
I just, you know, I, there are songs that have been written for stuff, um, to tie in with something or a song that's been written for a TV show or movie or whatever that are, that are great. And there are people that write really, really great songs for these purposes. And this, I just find I really lazy. Like you were saying about the last song, Tim Byron, I, I find this so incredibly lazy. It's just a beat. With the occasional woman coming in going, here come the men in black. Uh, and Will Smith wrapping the plot to a movie. I just, I, no, I think it's friggin' terrible. And it's one of those things that really has no excuse being this bad. Like, sure, it works because it's sold and it tied in, but I, I think it's bloody terrible. Tim Coyle. Yeah, we didn't really get the best of Will Smith in the 90s, I feel, and definitely not. By this stage, I think part of the thing with the film Men in Black and this song is that his charisma as performer pulls it through in some respects. But I, I'm, I lean much more towards Casey's argument here that, yeah, it's, it's slick, but it's not going anywhere no. or doing anything. It's the one kind of melodic line repeated over and over. And there's no variation on it. No. And also the the thing that annoyed me and really made me want to punch him in the face is the repi- repetition of MIBs. I know. Which saves you no syllables at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, which is, again, Tim Byron talks about the most 90s things is just kind of reducing everything to an anagram is kind of yet another one of those. Um, That'd be an acronym. Yeah, it was no, an acronym, no. sorry. <laughs> acronym. Yeah. A- acronym. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, the 1960s in the US was the, the high point of acronyms, but, yeah, it takes off again in the 90s. Um, yeah, it's just something quite sterile about it, particularly when you contrast this to Boom, Shake the Room, mm. which, oh, yeah. I mean, we, we, we kind of argued maybe didn't shake the room enough, but it shook the room a lot more than this. Yeah. And, yeah, there's just something quite anodyne about it, I find. And, yeah, kind of, I listened to it once this week. We'll never listen to it again. My life will be none the poorer for it. <laughs> uh, I find that your point, Casey, very interesting in that, like, there are reasons that people write songs for movies. When people write songs for movies... Uh, if they do it well, they've tapped into a theme of the movie and then extrapolated on that. So I'm just trying to look for examples. And let's take, for example, Lose Yourself by Eminem. Right. You know, they've taken yeah. the, core See, that's idea, awesome. the core idea of the film and then written a song about that core idea. Mm. They didn't just explain the plot. No. Like, it wasn't like, like Men in Black was a song about, you know, let's have fun or an adventure or the fear of the unknown. Like, there's no themes to it. It's basically... Just the movie. Yeah. Here's a song about Men in Black. <laughs> it was just like, yeah. this is a jingle. Actually, Lose Yourself is a really good comparison point because Lose Yourself as much as, I mean, actually Eminem has done some great work. I wouldn't say that I'm a fan or I've bought any records, but Lose Yourself in terms of what it is for that movie is mm. amazing. Yeah. So this doesn't do any of that when it comes no. to being a movie song. It is an ad mm. for a film. I agree with everyone, though, that, um, you know, Will Smith just has a natural charisma that at least brings it above being... Just, you know, a not as terrible as it possibly could be. And, you know, he's always fun and he does a pretty good job. And in the film clip, he's quite funny and whatever. And, but he's, this is when I think, for me anyway, Will Smith was in the decline. I 
probably didn't watch this film, and I don't think I've really seen many Will Smith films since. I would have sort of Independence Day like everyone else, but that's about sure. it. And then, um, but yeah, this song didn't really do much for me. Uh, it did come from really, really successful record, which I would have sold thousands of copies of it in my record store. I'm sure you would have as well, Casey, which is Big Willie style. I don't even remember Big Willie style. <laughs> which is a great <laughs> name. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you just brought that up to have Casey say the name, didn't you? <laughs> no, <but> like, <laughs> you want Will Smith's albums to be called Big Willie style, surely. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a huge That deal. also had Getting Jiggy on it, right? Yeah, Getting, getting Jiggy, jiggy with, with it. Yeah. 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 Well, you know what his next album is called? Millennium. <laughs> <laughs> like new manium <laughs> yeah it was awesome and look and um and not the first not the last time he'd be doing a soundtrack for a movie as well which is sort of just as poor i think which is wild wild west and, <laughs> no it's worse <laughs> yeah that, yeah, that, that is you know, worse yeah but it's the same thing like he's not singing about anything he's got nothing to say he's just no it's a case of will smith is in our movie we have to get him to do a rap yeah, and yeah, yeah that, that's all. That's all. Yeah, and then, and this is like, I, I and and I get that mm. that is how it's all put together, and that, that how these things have to come together. Like, and somebody's got to write a song, and somebody's got to do I th- it. I th- it th- needs to be better than this. Yeah, I, th- I think that from his point of view, it's like, oh, they're asking me to rap again. Mm. I'll just phone it in. Yeah, you know, I want oh, to be. So I want. I want to be playing Muhammad Ali. That's kind of what yeah. he has at this point in time. People aren't taking him seriously yet. Yeah. I, I Look, don't know. Didn't he um, get sort of people taking him seriously after he did that sort of arty kind of movie, like in 94, 95? What was that movie that he did? Independence Day. <laughs> no, no, before that. The, um, bad, bad Boys. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've got to find out what it is. I'm going to Well, okay, let's not put it off any longer, guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, like that, isn't it? Let's uh, get to our last song of tonight. This song was number one for... Just six weeks. It was still, however, the highest selling single of the year and of the decade and of all time. This is (laughs) Elton John. That's actually true. Elton John, something in the way you look tonight, slash Candle in the Wind, 1997. Goodbye, England's rose. May you ever grow in our hearts. You were the grace that placed itself. Where lives were torn apart You called out to our country And you whispered to those in pain Now you belong to heaven And the stars spell out your name And it seems to me You lived your life like a candle in the wind Never fading With the sunset when the rain set in And your footsteps will always fall here Along England's greenest hills Your candles burned out long before Your legend ever will So, highest selling single of the decade, but um, the Coolio song has the longest run 
It this this single sold thirty three million, and it's the only single to ever sell more than ten million. God. So yeah, it is. Then no one will ever come close. That was that was Candle in the Wind uh, by Elton John, the highest selling single of all time. Funnily enough, and uh, <laughs> and I know Casey, you didn't know about who I'll be missing you's written about, but I don't know if you know about this one. <laughs> <laughs> Shortly before this song came out. <laughs> There was an incident in power. Anyway, um, <laughs> too soon. Too soon. <laughs> really? Is it really too soon? It's, it's about two dead people. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> really? No, I don't think that that Muslim guy got him. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so wow. Yeah. That anyway, look. Uh, <laughs> Whoa. Uh, do we? Yeah. Um, where do we even start? Look, Casey. Let's go around back to you. Candle in the Wind, 1997. Well, I think, I mean, the question is, the question is, where were you when Diana died, right? Like, that, I think that's the question. Mm. And, and I, I actually remember really vividly. It was just one of those things I was hanging around on a, oh, it was my mother's birthday. It was my mother's yeah, birthday. Right. Um, it was August 31st, 1997. Um, and I just remember just, uh, sitting around watching TV and somebody ran in and said, change the channel, you know, yeah, it, was, right. it was one of those moments. I, I really remember that quite vividly. Um, in terms of uh, the song and Elton John, like I, I, I really liked Candle in the Wind as a song and I remember really liking it and I really liked Elton John and we've talked about Elton John before, but um, I was a little bit confused about, as to what it was kind of all about, really, and why why he did it, I didn't really know that Elton John and Princess Di were were best mates, and and all. So I had none of that backstory. Yeah. Um. So it was just kind of one of those things that existed. As far as I was concerned, Elton John, as much as I'd liked him in the in the part previously, and would go on to like him, it was a bad period for Elton John. Like this being backed with something in the way you look tonight, which is just like mm. bad as Elton John gets. Um, I was just yeah. No, it, so is, it really is real. So, so far, far. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair um, you know. So, so that I, I was just all a bit confused about it at the time. But I, I remember seeing these those those bins in in Big W of just thou- literally oh God, thousands of copies yeah. of this CD single in it, and, and I just was always amazed by it. And you've got the cover. You've pulled yeah. up the cover there, and it just oh man, just brings back the memories. Oh, it really does. <laughs> Tim Coyle, what about you? It's it's a hard one to to talk about. It's it's about an instance of public grief. I've never been able to wrap my head around. Yeah. Um. And yeah, just I get why he was so keen to perform this and to to have it released. This was important to him. That makes a whole lot of sense to sell the millions upon millions of copies that it did. Um, look, uh, people's reaction to Diana's death means it makes a, a whole lot of sense, but it was it was such an odd event. Mm. Um, the way it was handled, the reaction to it, it was just this incredible outpouring of public grief that... Um, I don't know if people could be that um, 
genuine and sympathetic to others in day-to-day life, the world would be a much better place. But it's <laughs> like we just store it all up for occasions like this when a celebrity, and she was a celebrity. Of course. Um, when a celebrity dies. And, yeah, uh, look, I like the original. Um, I think I've explained before, when I was a little boy, my nano would um, have me watch old films with her. Marilyn Monroe was a big part of my childhood. And, of course, the original Candle in the Wind yeah. was about Marilyn Monroe. Um, um, so, yeah, I was always fascinated with that song um, and and kind of the travails of her life. And, yeah, the, the recontextualising of this song um, was something I was at an age where I was quite cynical and, yeah. Have I you found- ever been in an age where you've not been <laughs> cynical? <laughs> Before this. <laughs> um, look, I found it. I just found something about it very distasteful in time. As I've said, I've come to see why he felt he had to perform this and why he had to do, why he had to do it. But mm. yeah, at the time, I just found it so unseemly. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Tim Byron. So yeah, well, I picked uh, Sacrifice Bells and John for my Choose Your Own Adventure thing in 1990. But, um, yeah, so I, I knew Candle in the Wind, of course, uh, because, you know, I, I listened to a lot of Elton John at one point. But um, Candle in the Wind wasn't one of my favourites as far as Elton John went. I liked the kind of more upbeat kind of stuff. And to be honest, by 1997, I was kind of a bit embarrassed about having liked Elton John when I was a bit younger because I was going through the kind of um, the grungy stage of liking sort of like alternative music. Like I was um, very into OK Computer at about the point when I remember Diana dying. Um, by Radiohead, right. and I was into this, you know, and, and in that kind of world, like Elton John's kind of nice sort of pop songs were, were not what I wanted. And um, so, yeah, so I, I mean, I remember Diana dying. I remember being um, at my dad's, at my dad's place. Um, we were driving in the car and it was on the radio and we got home and I, it was the first media event that I watched on like 24 hour uh, TV news because my dad had Foxtel and so yeah. we were watching CNN <laughs> or um, Sky News or something do it. Um, listening to this song as a song, um, at the time I didn't like it because, uh, I, I just didn't really like it. I could see why people did and I wasn't going to sort of say it was crap or anything, but listening to it now, it's, it's badly done. Like that, that's the thing that frustrates me about it because like Elton John could have done this so much better, but obviously, you know, he had to do it quickly to change the lyrics, to write it in time for the funeral and stuff like that. And the, and the, the lyrics and the way that the new lyrics fit into the rhyme scheme, work really badly in, in my opinion like the the changes aren't one aren't ones that are, are neutral or better the song they make the song worse like they don't quite the words don't quite fit into the rhyme scheme and so that's something that i found frustrating about this song that it, it's it just doesn't quite do the justice to you know his friend that he would want to that he probably wanted it to have it done and it was the and as a performance it's okay uh but it's not uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting listening to the sound of his voice singing this song in a studio context compared to the original, because like you can tell how much older he sounds and how much sadder and how much more mournful he is. But um, yeah, but that doesn't quite. There's, there's something missing from this that's there in the original. Mm-hmm. It's not really because of the Diana lyrics. There's just something missing mm-hmm. here that I wanted to be there. Yeah, I think also part of the original was singing about Marilyn Monroe. There's a distance between him and who he's singing about, and in that way, he he's fascinated about her. He's enraptured yeah. by her, whereas this was someone he knew 
um, and was genuinely grieving over and this was a close personal friend. It's just pure grief. And, yeah, that doesn't necessarily make for the best performance. Yeah, look, this this song's very strange for me in that, um, you know, Diana just didn't really play any part in me or my family's life until she died. Yeah. You know, we were sort of not really the kind of family who cared about that stuff, didn't really come into our world. And I remember, so, you know, where I was, was when Diana died was just watching the news with my parents one day. I have a clear memory of that. Seeing that footage of the car and just sort of going, oh, that's sad. And my dad making a comment that, oh, yeah, she seemed nice. Right. And then, like, that outpouring of grief was so beyond me. Almost, what, 18 months later, I got a job at a record store, maybe 12 months later, and I was still selling the single. Yeah. Like, this single didn't go out of print the way other singles did. And there was just such a reaction to it. So it is a little bit like the Macarena. It's almost too big to talk about. Um, It's just the thing. I totally agree with Tim Byron. It is awkward listening to it today. Mm. I love Candle in the Wind, or I've come to love Candle in the Wind so much that I wince like it at how sort of badly rewritten it is and how you expect him to say a really, really beautiful line and instead he says a really awkward one about England's rolling hills or whatever, and it's yeah. just like, oh, God. Like, like, it's just like... Well, it's just cliches. For- but he's, like, forcing it into the metre of the song, and it's like, oh, come on. But Did, did Toppen write the, the... Toppen did, did write yeah. the lyrics, yeah. though. And, look, but it was... The story is really just how much of a monster this song was. It was unlike every any other song that has ever happened in the history of pop music. Yeah. It is a merchandise item for Daily Mail readers who wanted to, to remember Diana and bought this single to do it. And I think Elton's come to hate it. He's refused to perform this song ever mm. again, this version mm. of it. He's not... So readers... Well, readers, uh, listeners it will be like, we couldn't find this on audio or Spotify or anything this week, no. right? Oh, God, no. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, it's not available on iTunes. It's It's... Something that, look, that that personal grief that he felt, I feel like he, you know, was caught up in the moment, wrote this song, rewrote one of his classics for a friend, made a bazillion dollars on it, and then just realised that... Did, did the money go somewhere? I think it must have. Surely it must have. Because like, she had found... Oh, yeah, it would have gone also, charity. Also, also, I think that she would yeah, yeah. As, a, as, a, as a guy who routinely... Um, yeah, gives money to big, charity. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah he's I'm quite pretty sure that yeah. I've been where all this he just pocket it, surely. But I, I, I just get get the sense from him in years to in years since that he's embarrassed that he did this. Yeah, you know? I don't think he's so much embarrassed that he did it. Just that the end product was something that yeah he didn't want to own. Yeah, exactly. I don't think he was embarrassed by the song. I think he was more embarrassed by the reaction to the song. Mm. Mm. So well, it's, it's kind, kind of, of interesting. Of we've, we've got two songs this week which were written in the throes of grief, and neither of them really kind of hits their mark. No, so much, uh, which is interesting. Though. This version of the song, like, it's not on like any of his greatest hits since. Like, he's not put it on like the Rocket Man one or like the greatest hits. Like, no. he's um he's quite happy to forget this existed in terms of you know. Things like Greatest Hits, which is sort of official histories of Elton John in a, in a bunch of ways. Like, he's, they're just not on there. And um, 
I think he actively, deliberately blocks it. Yeah, and he probably does, and it's not on Spotify, and, like, you know, they probably, you know, if he was doing it for a purely kind of commercial reason, it would be on Spotify. Yeah, and there's also, look, who do I want to project myself as, as an artist? Mm. And this song is a per- was a personal thing for him, but mm. it didn't fit into into the image he was building up for himself, and therefore he's just he's discounted it. It was something that he felt he had to do, and he did. Uh, it was his duty to his friend, and beyond that, yeah, yeah. It, it was just kind of it, it doesn't. It's not part of his career. It just stands apart from it. It's a event totally mm. outside. Uh, yeah, so. I mean, me and Casey talk a lot about um, a book called Lost in Music that we love by Giles Smith, and in it he talks a lot about the reasons people buy music that aren't for musical reasons. Yeah. Right, whether you're just, like, loyalty buying or something like that. And this is one. This sold 33 million copies. 32 million of them were sold not on musical grounds, yeah, surely. Of no, of course. But I think, like, the the song has that kind of emotional hook in the sound of his voice and in like kind of the melody and things like that, that people can, can put the feelings they have about Princess Di on this. I mean, it's funny with the kind of thing about um, Princess Di and the, the monarchy in general and the way people feel about that kind of stuff in general, because like we're all pretty kind of lefty kind of guys and, and our view of that kind of stuff is probably we were all pretty much Republicans by 1997, I suspect. Um, and, you know, so the monarchy didn't mean much to us. It wasn't part of our, like, that kind of the, the, the stuff which we felt any duty or loyalty to. But for a lot of people, there was. Like, you know, for a, I bet John Howard bought this single. Um, <laughs> I reckon somebody probably bought it yeah, for Yeah, probably him. someone bought it for him. <laughs> but, like, you know, that, that kind of sense of duty and loyalty that kind of conservatives feel in a way that... Um, in a way that people who are more liberal don't feel is probably part of, like, why there was this outpouring. It's like an emotion that we weren't kind of part of, but for other people it was a big thing. Yeah, I think you have to qualify that. It's, like, loyalty to a certain yeah. entity. Yeah, loyalty to, yeah, it's, yeah the people who are effective, officially in charge. Yeah, people, yeah, people whose politics are not conservative can be quite loyal to, to course, other entities. So those on the left can be very, very loyal to their union, yeah, for example. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it, it's, I guess loyalty is, is an interesting point on this as well because for me, as someone who really likes the song Candle in the Wind, um, the original song, mm. it took me quite a long time to get over this whenever I heard Candle in the Wind. And I'm through it now and I can quite happily listen to Candle in the Wind, you know, the original version of Candle in the Wind now, and and I really enjoy it again. But it took me a long time to get to that point because of this. Yeah, the degree to which it picked up that baggage. Yeah, oh, yeah, like so much baggage on the the way through. And now I I think I can be through it now like, like Elton John performs the original Candle in the Wind now and, and to the point where he just... I, I, I guess it's um, for, for me seeing Elton John perform it almost as if the other thing never existed. That's what I have to do to hear the, <laughs> <laughs> to hear the old Candle in the Wind for, for what it's worth and those great guitar lines and the backing vocals that are just one of the most... If you ever get the chance to hear the isolated track of the backing vocals to the original um, yeah. Yeah. Candle in the Wind, it is just spectacular. You've heard that, Tim? Oh, my God. It's in the classic albums thing. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. That I have my had on DVD, and I lent to someone. I never got it back. I can't remember who's got it. Any of you guys? 
Tillage, you guys? Anyway, no. no? Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> look, I agree. That's a great song, and look, it leads us me to my really last question, which is Elton John. Since this song, do we have any opinions? Songs from the West Coast, brilliant. <laughs> yes, this is where I wanted to go. Yeah, it's Ryan Adams' album, right? Yes. <laughs> um, I want love. Uh, the train won't be stopping here anymore. Yeah, yeah like, this train doesn't stop here anymore. Yeah, oh, it's a lovely record, isn't it? Oh, it's great. Yeah. With great videos as well, if you've ever seen them. No, I haven't, no. Yeah. So One of the videos has got Robert Downey Jr. as um, basically like doing the lyrics and stuff like that. And the other video has got uh, Justin Timberlake, very young Justin Timberlake, um, pretending to be, El- to be Elton in like the early 70s, like with the fancy big glasses oh, and all that kind uh, of Maybe I've seen and that. And they're both really well done. Yeah. But yeah, they're both great songs. But after that, his career hasn't really done much, has it? Oh, he did look, a bunch of just, soundtrack stuff. Yeah, and, and he things. just tours as a, as a legacy artist and, much, and plays. Yeah, but how much more does he need to do? Well, that's what, right. What I mean, more does Elton John does. need to do other than tour every other year? And, and he just did that really odd thing with Pinal a couple of years ago, which I don't you really know, don't yeah, quite understand. Of, um, look at, look his after, look after his kid, enjoy enjoy his life. Yeah. And know, just, I, feel, I think yeah. he's earned that. Actually, he's, set, um, yeah. he's on the most recent, um, uh, you know, that iTunes festival thing that happens? now yeah. there's an Elton John set on that it's actually oh, yeah. really good it's worth worth a look and look I'm just yeah. I, I totally remember this there was um, an album a couple of years ago called, called The Union which was him and Leon Russell mm. oh, okay. which is great uh, and there was a Cameron Crowe film about the making of it and yeah he's just doing cool things that um, yeah that he wants to do so yeah and he's still and you know I love the fact that he's still touring with that but pretty much that same band <laughs> yeah, that yeah. played on Goodbye Yellow Brick Road I think that's awesome yeah, I would have went and saw him in Sydney in 2007, 2008. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I went and saw him with that band and he played, uh, I remember he played, like, you know, stuff like Love Lies Bleeding. And, oh, cool. And, um, oh, really? For a friend. Like, he was doing that kind of stuff and, um, yeah, like, some sort of nice deep cuts and it was really good to see him. Like, the thing I remember from that was just how much the crowd loved him. Yeah. Like, and, and how much he loved, like, you know, that kind of, um, you know, the, the applause. Like, at the end, I remember, like, he would, like, go around and sort of try and pat the hand of everyone who was up the front. And, and like he was just really like happy to do have that whole thing, yeah. To get do that whole thing and to get like the connection with people, like that was the thing I remember from that concert. That like, um, but yeah, like he he was singing really well, and like you know he obviously had such a connection to his fans. <laughs> okay, Braid, let's just get this done, and I can come back to kill you. <laughs> That brings us to the end of another episode of 90% Hits. As usual, we'll be going around the room and seeing what everyone's favourite song is from the ones that we discussed tonight. Uh, To recap, the songs that we talked about were Savage Garden with Truly Madly Deeply, Hanson with Mbop, Puff Daddy and Others with I'll Be Missing You, Will Smith, (laughs) Men in Black, and Elton John with, let's face it, It Was Candle in the Wind, 1997. (laughs) Tim Coyle, why don't we start with you? Mbop. Tim Byron. Mbop. Casey. Mbop. Oh, it's a hard week for me and I kind of... You didn't really like a lot of the songs tonight. No, it was a terrible week for me. It was a bad week for you. And I kind of... I hated Mbop. I hated Mini Black. I hate I'll Be Missing You. I, I'm offended by a candle in the wind, so I kind of have to go with Truly Madly <laughs> Deeply. Oh! This song is kind of fine. So there we go. I love you, Truly Madly we can't Deeply, DBD. <laughs> Byron out. Come on. Come on, Tim. I will stand with you on a mountain. Um, I'll push you off it. <laughs> Would you yeah, bathe well, with him in the sea? <laughs> no, I draw a line at the sea. Um, so, well... 
we'll be back next week with a bit more. But until then, Casey, do you want to let people know where they can find us on the internet? Absolutely. So you can find us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, Gmail. And also just today I looked into starting up a, um, a YouTube channel or at least a, a playlist that, that everybody could get just to put all the clips on it in one place. So I'll, I'll, um, I'll start compiling that and get into it as well. So we're 90% hits, uh, 90 in numbers and percent in letters in all instances. Tim Byron, where, where can people find us on the blog? So we've got a Tumblr, it's 90percenthits.tumblr.com, and on the Tumblr, it's sort of like the bonus features on a DVD. Like, we post all the kind of extra stuff that um, we could have talked about on the podcast. So, you know, we're going to post, like, you know, probably the video to, you know, something in the way you look tonight by Elton John, and we'll be talking about that. We'll talk about some of the number twos of the time. They'll probably be quite a lot, because all of these songs were at number ones for forever. Um, and uh, number twos, you guys love that. And oh, yeah. um, I, I was told on the weekend by someone that um, they always turn off when we start talking about this stuff. Uh, and so if you're still listening to this and you haven't already turned <laughs> off because you've heard all this a million times before, um, stay tuned for the Easter egg at the end. Yeah, I guess if that person's probably missed out on Easter eggs. If there are any. We're like a Marvel <laughs> Comics movie. <laughs> uh, leads into the next one. Samuel L. Jackson appears for no reason. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that does it for us. Hopefully and that's the very person we're defaming. <laughs> Easter eggs. <laughs> and look, we've been getting lots of great sort of uh, feedback on our Facebook page and on iTunes and various things. So, so please leave us a message. We love reading everything that you write. But until next week, if you've heard what's happened to Mary and any information, please let us know. If you've heard what's happened to Mary and any information, please let us know. Car accident, Paris. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard if you say Bloody Mary three times in a mirror, she turns up behind you. Yeah, right, the men in black wiped her memory. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So, so many things that they can stop.